Well, greetings, everybody. Excellent to uh, see you at uh, the early part of 2021. Can you believe it? We got here. And uh, I suspect you're like a lot of people who uh, sense some... Uh, emotional, psychological uplift at the start of a new year, some fresh hopefulness. The days are getting longer, there's uh, more sunshine, and, uh, and we think about new starts. Uh, that's part of what goes with a new year. Some people like to get their pencil out and start making lists about all the good things that they're going to do in this year. They make resolutions, uh, and that, of course, has uh, mixed results. Here's, uh, here's somebody that's just keeping the same list year after year, and they cross it off, and they make a few notations. Uh, <clears throat> they start out losing weight, and then they decide they're going to lose weight again. The resolution uh, didn't carry along quite as well as they had hoped. Uh, they're going to get fit, but they're going to do it next year. And uh, they're going to stand up to the boss, but then they decide maybe they'll just find a new job. Uh, number five is kind of uh, humorous, but, it's, uh, but it's, it's also got a sad side to it, doesn't it? The realistic side, uh, he's going to be nicer to his wife, and, uh, but then because those resolutions don't often carry through, he's now going to try to be nicer to his ex-wife. Uh, that is the way a lot of our lives go. We sense the hopefulness of a new year, and we say, that, that ought to make a difference for the way I live. But in fact, we find that it often doesn't. And we come to the end of that year, and we're, we're back in the same place. Well, that's just to say, then, that when we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that, that significant change is really hard. And just because it's hard, we often don't actually accomplish it. At the same time, change, real change, is an essential part of a gospel life. So as we, as we sense this uh, desire in people to change and sense it in, in ourselves, we have to think, you know, that is something that I think God puts in us. And it's something that the gospel calls us to, not just as uh, a nice thing, but as something that the gospel insists upon really does happen in the lives of those who know and experience the gospel. Change is essential. 
And so change is one of three elements in our church's vision. We talk about transformation, prayerfulness, and mission. And transformation is just that idea of change, becoming a different person. And so I thought as we start out this uh, new year, I'd like to work on a a series of studies with you around this notion of transformation, and I'm going to call it something like this, transformation, learning to live in the kingdom of God. And uh, particularly what I want to do today is, is help us to make this connection in our minds between transformation, this deep change, and a theme which actually turns out to be the, the leading theme in the teaching ministry of Jesus, which is the kingdom of God. And uh, uh, Kaylee just led us into some of those thoughts beautifully with her prayer about the kingdom coming. I mean, that's what Jesus told us to pray for, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. So, Kingdom is important to the gospel, it's central to the gospel, and transformation, change, is essential to that message as well. And I want to begin linking those up for you this morning, and, and I want to look not at, uh, at the teaching of Jesus, although this is very much in the teaching of Jesus, but it actually goes back and starts just before uh, his public ministry with the teaching of John the Baptist, the ministry of the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. This is a text that we looked at way back when, but uh, I think we ought to come back to it as we begin thinking about transformation and learning to live in the kingdom of God. So follow along as I read. <clears throat> in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right. So, transformation. Now, the word that puts us on to transformation, deep change, in this passage is the word repentance. And we've been thinking about that some from the Old Testament over the last couple months as we looked at Hosea and the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Both of them talk about that. It's an important Old Testament theme. And uh, here we have John the Baptist, who I think is really the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's talking about repentance. Jesus will do the same. The New Testament will do the same. When we think about transformation, about deep change in our lives, we have to think about repentance. It's not the only idea connected with change, but it's a very significant one, and we've talked about it before, but we want to do some more reflection here. So we have transformation in this passage, but we also have the kingdom message. The kingdom is at hand. It's at the door. And these two are brought together, and that's what I want to do this morning. I want to help us to see that those two ideas are are linked very directly. John's message is, repent. Why? Because the kingdom is here. So let's talk about kingdom hope and, and get more of a feeling for what is going on. And our Old Testament studies will help us here. First, think about this uh, character in the story, John the Baptizer. Uh, Here's a a picture which uh, captures uh, a bit of the the story as we just read it. Uh, John is on the left there. Uh, You can spot him because he's preaching. He's telling people the message repent because the kingdom is at hand, and you can tell him by his dress. Matthew makes a point of it that John is dressed strangely, and he's dressed in coarse clothing, camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and uh, he's a wilderness guy. He's, He's not in the mainstream. He doesn't have a cell phone. Right and and uh, doesn't drive a car and he doesn't have a nine to five job in Jerusalem. He lives out in the wilderness. He's in the Jordan Valley, the deep rift valley. Jordan runs between. If you remember our map, it runs from the Sea of Galilee south to the Dead Sea, and there it just all evaporates. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, So John is in the wilderness. He's near the Jordan River. He's probably close to the Dead Sea, the southern part, because the people from Judea, which is that region surrounding it, they're the ones that go out to him, and and some of the leaders from Jerusalem come down to see what's happening. So that's his location. The crowds come out. A great interest in what is taking place there, and uh, this may uh, this picture may actually portray the, the
the Jewish leaders because they don't, they don't look quite sure about what, God, what they're hearing, right? And uh, what we find in the story is the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were the religious elite, they, they come to check John out. They don't really come to get baptized, but they come to check out what he's doing. We don't know a lot about John, but uh, he is a remarkable figure. Uh, He's a remarkable figure in part because Jesus says he is. He is a relative, a cousin of some sort to Jesus. John's mother Elizabeth and Jesus' mother Mary were relatives. So he's some some sort of cousin. And... uh, Jesus makes a remarkable statement about John. He says he's a prophet. And by the way, the the Jewish people have not had a prophet for 400 years. If you want to know why folks are so excited to go out and listen to John, it's, it's partly for that reason. So Jesus says he's a prophet. But when the people raise questions about John, our Lord says to them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, more than a prophet. Uh, In fact, he says, of those who have been born of women, there has never arisen a greater than John the Baptist. That's an extraordinary statement by Jesus, is it not? So so he's not just important in terms of his place in history. He is that. But he is significant as just an incredibly good man. That's what Jesus evaluates him to be. So there's a tremendous power about someone who's, who's a really good character person. And John has that kind of power. That's the nature uh, of his person. And then there's this message that he brings. Summarized by Matthew very concisely here in just one sentence. The message is, repent because God's kingdom is coming. Now, I think we need to ask the question, when he spoke that message, what were people hearing? Again, remember, there's a lot of excitement. Matthew tells us that from, that all of Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea and that whole Jordan area, everybody, crowds of people went out to hear this man out in the, in the sticks, no wawa. I mean, you can't, even, you can't even get a sandwich out there. But these people are all headed out into the wilderness to hear the preaching of John and to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. So what is it in this Message, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do they hear in it? Well, they hear uh, a number of things 
that I'm going to call the Old Testament picture. Remember, these, these people are aware of the scriptures that we call the Old Testament. For them, that's just, that's just their Bible. That's their scriptures. The historical parts of the Old Testament and then the words of the prophets. They're aware of these things. And over the last number of months, uh, last fall and then in the Advent season, we looked at some of that picture in Hosea and Isaiah. So <clears throat> notice a, a number of things that would have been on their mind when they heard the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, same thing, is at hand. So what do they think about? Well, certainly they think about the restoration of kingship. Remember that hundreds of years before, in fact, close to a thousand years before, God had given them a king, David the son of Jesse, who uh, was the defender, the deliverer, the strengthener of the people of Israel. Uh, he was an extraordinary king who in some ways became a model for all the kings after that. To be a good king is to be like David. God had made an extraordinary promise to David that, uh, that David would never lack a successor, a descendant of his on the throne of Israel. Now, of course, that fell on hard times uh, around uh, 600 when the Babylonians took over. And, and for 600 years now, that promise has seemed kind of empty. And yet, the prophets continue to say that God would fulfill that word because he would bring a king, a descendant of David. Remember Isaiah's mention of the shoot that would grow out of the stump of Jesse. So one day that would be fulfilled. The Messiah, as he was called, the anointed one, would come as David's heir. And, and so... When John shows up saying the kingdom is at hand, they obviously connect this with all those prophecies about the coming of the Messiah because they haven't had a king and that's what they want. And then, of course, related to that is this idea of the end of exile. We studied through that section of Hosea where the prophecy is made that the northern ten tribes are going to go into exile to the Assyrians. And that happens. And then Isaiah comes along, and Isaiah prophesies in the south in Judah, and Isaiah says, same problem, same result. This time it won't be the Assyrians, it'll be the Babylonians. And so in, in 606, the first wave of exile takes place. Daniel and his friends go off into exile. And then 20 years later, 586, the Babylonians come back and they smash everything, destroy the temple. And uh, a vast number of Judeans, Jews, are taken into exile. 
Exile lasts 70 years. At the end of 70 years, some of those Jews come back, but many of them don't. Daniel never comes back, right? He just he goes to the next empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, but, but he never returns, and most Jews don't return. They're still in exile. 500 years later, when Jesus comes, they're still in exile. Even though the city's been partially rebuilt and the temple's been restored and there's Jews living there, but, but even those Jews are still in exile in the sense that they are not independent. They are, they are under the, the, the foot, the heavy foot of oppression. It's just one empire after another that oppresses them. But the coming of the kingdom means that exile is going to end. Oppression will cease. You know that Christmas hymn that we sing sometimes, O Holy Night? In his name all oppression will cease. That's, that's the Old Testament understanding. The heavy boot is gone. Of course, with that is the forgiveness of sin. Whose sin? Israel's sin. Why are they in exile? Because they sinned. They departed from the Lord. They broke the covenant. They worshiped idols. God is going to deal with their sin. We looked at Isaiah 40 two weeks ago. Remember that? How it starts out? Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. Speak consolingly to my people and say to them that their long warfare is ended. Their sin is pardoned. That's part of the hope. The kingdom is coming. God somehow is going to clear the slate. Israel will be forgiven. And the result will be universal shalom. That wonderful word that speaks of wholeness, of well-being, of safety, of all the things that make for true human flourishing. That will come. Why? Because, Isaiah says, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. The government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of the future, Prince of Peace. The Messiah will bring the shalom that everybody in Israel wants. So when John comes and says, repent because the kingdom is at hand, do you see how that's a shorthand notation for all of this Old Testament expectation. And these people know it. They know it better than we know it today, huh? And so there's great enthusiasm. Everybody heads out to, to see John, even the people that are suspicious like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's accentuated because of a couple things that probably are worth noting here. That is... In the first century, in John's day, there were, there were a couple things that, 
ramped up this expectation. There was a sense at this time that that it was the right time for God to act. You know how folks, uh, even in our short histories, at different times have gotten really torqued up feeling that they knew what God was going to do. And uh, they've usually been wrong. But there was somewhat of that feeling in the first century, and to some extent, they were right. So there's a couple of things that we might reflect on. One is the, the deep influence of the prophecies of the prophet Daniel. Remember, Daniel was in the exile, and uh, Daniel was very concerned about what God was doing, what his purposes were. And there's a couple places in the book of Daniel. We'll just note one here. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, there's a story about King Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the empire. Daniel was one of his advisors. And the king had a dream. And in the dream, he saw this massive colossus figure and in the dream the head of the figure was gold the chest and the arms were silver the belly and the thighs were bronze and the legs were iron he didn't know what it meant he calls together his wise men they don't know but Daniel does he's Daniel says, God will reveal that to me, and so here is the revelation. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king, you're the head of gold. That's Babylon. But after Babylon, there's another kingdom coming, which is the kingdom of Media Persia, and that's going to be followed by another kingdom, the belly and the thighs of bronze, which... uh, Daniel doesn't say this, but, but as it proves to be the case, that's the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. And that's going to be followed by a fourth major kingdom, which historically we identify with Rome. And after that, in the vision, there's a stone cut without hands that falls upon the feet of the image and destroys the image, and then the stone grows into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And Daniel says... That stone that grows is going to be a kingdom that God sets up. A God kingdom, right? A kingdom of God. Now, the Jews certainly knew this prophesying. And they knew Babylon was gone. They knew Media Persia had come and gone. They knew... The Greek empire of Alexander the Great, that had dissolved almost immediately into four different portions. And the one portion, the Seleucids, had, had tremendous power, uh, very oppressive in Judea. But they were now gone. And the new kids on the block were the Romans. Those hard legs and feet of iron. That's what was currently in place. And they knew in the sequence 
that that was the last kingdom before God set up his kingdom. So what do you think they thought when this guy out in the wilderness starts to say, get ready, because God's kingdom is right at the door. What did they think? They thought, yes, finally. Six centuries we've been waiting for this. And if he's right, if John's right, we may live to see this. Can't happen too soon. Lots of, lots of expectations. So I think that's part of this enthusiasm that brings all these people out. <clears throat> the other thing is... Uh, John himself. Now, do you notice that Matthew takes the time to describe how John is dressed? I mean, that's not... We're not told how Jesus dressed. We're told how John is dressed. Now, that tells you something significant, right? So how's he dressed? Camel's hair and a leather belt. Once again, this is where knowing the stories which these people knew from the Old Testament, this is where stuff, the bells start to ring. See, because there is somebody in the Old Testament, a prophet in the Old Testament, who were told dress just like that. 2 Kings chapter 2. It's the prophet Elijah. In other words, Matthew says, understand that there's a lot of excitement about John, and part of it is because he's dressed like Elijah. You say, well, why should that be so important? Well, because of another Old Testament prophecy, which is found in the order that we have it in our Protestant Bibles. It's the, it's the very end of the Old Testament about 400 years prior to John. And it's the book of Malachi, prophecy of Malachi. And and here's how Malachi concludes. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. But God says, that's what I'm going to do before the end, the great and terrible day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the wrap-up in in Old Testament terms, right? When history is brought to its conclusion, which in their mind is the coming of the kingdom which will not end, and the coming of the Messiah. So Messiah, so, so Malachi says, 400 years before, going to send you Elijah the prophet. And then you know what happens? Crickets. For 400 years. There's no, there's no prophetic voice in Judaism, and, and the Jews recognize that they don't have a prophet. I mean, we have evidence that they knew that prophecy had ceased. So part of what they expect is going to happen 
when God brings his kingdom and fulfills his promises, part of what they expect is that prophecy will begin again. And specifically what they expect is they're going to get at least one prophet who is going to be like Elijah. See, and they know these stories. So here now they, they get word of somebody out in the wilderness. By the way, Elijah spent a lot of his time in the wilderness too. And this guy is dressed like Elijah's, like he's got an Elijah costume on. It's like he's wearing a sign. And he's talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, if you were a Jew in that day and you knew a little bit of those Old Testament stories, would you be excited? Would you have big questions in your mind? Of course you would. And that's what's happening here. They have this hope of the coming of the kingdom. All right, so he announces the kingdom is at hand, but he joins this to this, this other thing where he says, you need to repent just because the kingdom is coming. That's the reason. The kingdom really is coming. It's at hand, therefore, Israel needs to repent. That's the demand of the kingdom. So let's talk a little bit about repentance here. We're thinking about transformation. That's one thing we say is important for our church. And one of the key ideas, one of them in transformation is repentance. You can't see real transformation without repentance. So what is it we're talking about here? In the Old Testament, it's this idea of turning back, right? It's, it's saying, I'm going in one direction. I realize it's the wrong direction. I'm, I'm turning back to the starting point. Or it's also the idea, I've been going away from God. I need to turn back toward God. So it's that change of direction. Uh, the New Testament word has a little bit different uh, nuance to it, and, and we'll be talking about that along the way. But let's clear the ground first, because repentance is, I mean, it's a religious word, it's an old word, and there's, I think, a lot of ideas connected with it that aren't really at the heart of what it means. So let's clear the ground a little bit, shall we? And let's say a couple things that is not. Repentance is not sorrow, regret, or shame. Now, when we repent, we may, we may frequently... I suppose we might say we always experience some of that sorrow, regret, and shame. Recognizing we're going in the wrong direction is, uh, that's a grief because we realize that in going the wrong direction, we've all often caused a lot of problems for ourselves and for other people. And when we come to see that, it's, it's hard to see and it's, it's saddening. We have regrets. But repentance itself is not those things. And and that's a point of confusion for some folks. Think about the difference between, say, uh, two of the disciples. Think about Peter and think about Judas. Right? They both make big mistakes, don't they? Both are filled with sorrow and regret and shame. 
but only one repents. Judas kills himself. Peter turns back. So there's a difference. Sorrow, shame, regret. We all have those things, don't we? But having those things is not the same as repentance. Secondly, repentance is not just confession. See, this, you've done this, and, and I've done this, and, and we hear people, to some extent, all the time, confessing. Often when they get caught in ways that they can't deny. They say, well, yeah, yeah okay, I, I did it. Well, confession is important. And at this point, I'd say confession is a significant part of repentance. It doesn't just accompany it. I think it's part of repentance. But repentance is more than just the confession of sins. And, and I think as Christians, we often go wrong there. We say to ourselves, well, you know, I, I confessed my sins. I acknowledged it to God. But the question still is, did you repent? Have I repented? And then a really important one is, uh, repentance is not just paying for sins, or it's not paying for sins. There's a lot of confusion on that, and I think uh, some of it goes back to the Middle Ages. Uh, in the Middle Ages, um, Western Christians had only Latin translations in which to read Scripture. And when St. Jerome translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, and he translated those texts, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he translated them as do penance. And to the medieval evil mind, doing penance was this sacrament in which you went to a priest and you confessed your sins, and then the priest gave you something to do to make satisfaction for your sins. Satisfaction was the term. Uh, it wasn't technically payment for sins, although in the popular mind, that's what it became. And by the time Luther came along, it was very crassly payment. You know, you go buy an indulgence, that's how you make satisfaction for your sins. And Luther turned the whole thing upside down when he said, when Jesus, our Lord and Master, said, repent, he wasn't talking about penance. He was talking about the life, the whole life of believers being one of repentance. Now, we may, we've mentioned that before. We may have to come back to that again, but let's just make the point here. Repentance is not paying for your sins. It's not groveling and saying, well, I'm sorry, and beating ourselves up. That's not repentance. Repentance is about change, isn't it? It's about transformation. So how are we going to talk about or think about uh, transformation? Well, maybe this will help us. Repentance is alignment with the kingdom. 
Repent. Why? Because the kingdom is about to break in. God's new order is about to come into the world. And to be part of that, you need to experience the transforming change that is called repentance. Think of it this way. Think of the kingdom picture. Let's call it that. My wife and my daughter like to do these complicated jigsaw puzzles with the very tiny, frustrating pieces. I can't imagine how people actually do that, but they do. My wife does it, and I guess she enjoys it. She's probably listening to this, so got to dig her a little bit, you know. But, but think about the kingdom which is coming as God's picture of what the world ought to be. It's a beautiful jigsaw puzzle. And, and in that puzzle, there is a small piece that is designed for you. The problem is, the way I am, I don't fit into that picture. It's, it's like the puzzle was bought at a garage sale and there were some bad pieces in there. And when you go to put it together, you just can't put it all together. There's, there's stuff that won't fit. Repentance says... To people who are interested in the kingdom of God, repentance says, do you understand that you don't fit in that? You fit into the world as it is. You know how to play according to that game. You've been shaped and formed and molded so that you fit the picture of the world in its disastrous form. And when the kingdom comes, if you want to be part of it, you have to be changed, deeply changed, and that's repentance, fitting in there. It is uh, a new outlook. It's a new way of seeing the world. It's a new way of seeing yourself. And of course, then, it's, it's a new life. You listen to the Sermon on the Mount, those opening words of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. It comes just, you know, two chapters after this announcement of the Baptist. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you say, oh, I don't, that's not a picture of me. Praying for your enemies? Not worrying? But that's the picture Jesus paints of the kingdom of God. And so if, if I'm going to be part of that picture, Dave Dunbar is going to have to experience a lot of change. Right? That's what we're talking about here, a, a new life. Well, enough for today, I think. Uh, my time is up. I don't know how that happens so often, but it does. Uh, Let's finish on this. Let's finish just 
reminding ourselves of something that the Baptist could not have known and did not live to see because in a short time he's going to lose his head and, and he's not going to see most of the ministry of Jesus. And he's not going to see that point three years later, the decisive point of the inbreaking of God's kingdom in a way that nobody expected and seemed impossible. That the king would appear and lay down his life. But even more unexpectedly, that after three days, he would be raised to life again in an extraordinary manifestation of God's sovereign life-giving power. And the coming of the kingdom and the possibility of the kingdom and the possibility of a new life that you and I could fit into that picture that God has is all rooted at the end of Jesus' ministry in the cross and in the resurrection. And so it's, it's our turning back to God, but turning in faith that recognizes that Jesus is the key to that hope. That all goes together, right? We can understand that John the Baptist didn't have all of that in view when he was preaching, but, but he got the Old Testament picture quite well. And he understood that, that somehow, if we were going to be part of it, there had to be change coming about in our life, and that change is repentance. And that's what we're going to be working on as we go into the future. This morning, uh, Wes is going to lead us in... Uh, a time of reflection and sharing together in the communion. And the communion focuses our attention on that cross and what took place there and on the resurrection that followed it. Wes, will you come?